There's a natural law. Physics tells us that for every action, there must be an equal and opposite reaction. They hate us, we hate them, they hate us back. And so, here we are, victims of mathematics. And just one more thing. On your trip back, I'd like you to take the time to learn the Babylon 5 mantra. Ivanova is always right. I will listen to Ivanova. I will not ignore Ivanova's recommendations. Ivanova is God. And, if this ever happens again, Ivanova will personally rip your lungs out. Babylon Control out. <sighs> Civilians. Just kidding about that God part. No offense. A voice in the night. Leads to a world that is out of control. They're ready to go in. If that planet goes, it'll take us with it. On the next Babylon 5. A battle for a long-lost world. You must stop them. Puts the station in the crossfire. That planet set the blow. We'll be ripped apart. On an all-new Babylon 5. You have transmissions holding. Patch incoming signal. Full audio and video decode. Purple files accessed. What you are about to see has never been shown to anyone outside the break house. there in podcast land welcome to grade 17 of babylon 5 podcast a part of the front row network and npr illinois community voices we are a group of newbies and first ones who have either watched the show from beginning to end or are watching it for the first time and we are knee deep and almost to the end of season one and we are here to talk today about a two-parter a double feature if you will a voice in the wilderness part one and two we're going to have two sections here the first section will be with our newbies and it will include no spoilers for what comes after this two-part episode and then we will just send the newbies out the airlock and talk about all the spoilers and i will say the beyond the rim section where we talk spoilers will be a little bit longer than usual tonight so i am scott and with me is kevin emily blake andrew justin mike john jesse and nicole before we get started with a voice in the wilderness let's go ahead and highlight a couple comments we have gotten from the interwebs the series of tubes that is the internet first from apple we got a new review and it's from kosval deacon but painted gold i don't know the reference but again, it's Coswell Deacon, but painted gold. And Coswell Deacon says, yes, young people do like B5. I mean, look at Andrew. Of course he does. Great podcast. I'm amazed their tiered viewer format isn't the default. As a gremlin who loves getting people into shows you know all too well, this is immensely satisfying. I just finished my second rewatch before being made aware of this show in my early 20s. I might have gotten a head start since I got my love of sci-fi from my mom. Is this you, Andrew? It is, Andrew. <laughs> Honest to God, it's not me. <laughs> but I hope more people in my age demo can use podcasts like this as an excuse to get into existing quality TV. Thank you, Kazaval Deacon or Andrew, whoever you may be. <laughs> <laughs> 
we really do appreciate the reviews, especially on Apple. That really does help our uh, show get out to more people. So when you are listening to us, be it on podcast version or if you're listening to us or watching us on YouTube, please make sure you hit that likes button or the subscribe button or the follow button, whatever it may be. And then also, if you can, please, please, please leave a review. Along with that, we do have our Patreon now. It's patreon.com slash gray17podcast. There you can really help support the show's growth by being a member of our inner group where we have several different tiers. All tiers get access to our Discord where I think right now we were talking about cats and dogs and Sequest, I think. But also you can get uh, higher tiers, which will give you access to monthly Q&As with us as well as being able to send in your own comments and questions into the show. And then we also have the Grey Council, which is our highest donator level, and that makes you a producer. And you can actually see the listing of producers down in the show notes below. Thank you to our producers who are really helping us continue to grow this show. Thanks to everybody that continues to support us um, on Facebook. Really, I only talk about Facebook because that's the only place I am. I don't Twitter and I try to stay off the interwebs because I don't like spoilers. So appreciate everybody on our Facebook group. One of the other things of the Patreon is our show notes. So each of our different hosts post their notes from that episode. And that seems to drive a lot of traffic. People are interested to see um, a little bit more. I know for myself, I don't always get to all of my notes. So um, there's a lot there that doesn't get spoken on this show that you can kind of have access to. Awesome. And on Twitter, we asked folks what their thoughts were on A Voice in the Wilderness. And Extra Life Mike says, Londo hokey pokey scene is so hilarious that it's the only way I sing it now. And then Jersey Peacock says, I was going to comment on the hokey pokey as well, but you beat me to it. It's hilarious. Let's go ahead and dive into first impressions on A Voice in the Wilderness. And again, we are going to do both episodes together. We are going to play this like it is basically a TV movie, much like we did The Gathering. So we're not going to split it up into part one and part two. We're just going to talk about the whole kitten caboodle. Let's go with Justin for first impressions. To me, this is Dylan's best episode so far for me. I think the whole episode was really strong. All the plots kind of made sense. You know, shit's finally starting to go down. You know, Mars is in full rebellion. Shit's happening on episode, uh, you know, on on epi- Epsilon three. Let me get that right. But I think it's, I think to me with this episode, gears are finally starting to turn. You're starting to see kind of some of the stuff that we predicted um, early on in the season kind of come true. And I think to me that it's this episode is going to be a bridge to a lot of stuff that's going to happen down the line. So to me, it was, it was fantastic. It was probably one of my more recent favorites. Andrew, go ahead. First impressions. Yeah, I also uh, really liked this episode. It was nice that we got a little bit uh, from each side character, aside from Kaj, who wasn't in this episode. Uh, but yeah, I really liked Delenn in this. Uh, I don't want to jump the gun too much, but I do also like how this whole little mini arc ended, where character arc for Delenn and uh, Garibaldi, it's uh, kind of a bittersweet, which is not really something that you get too often, and at least in this show, not really something you get too often just yet. Oh, yeah, I really appreciate that. As I said, like in the first episode, Garibaldi must suffer at all times. And Garibaldi will suffer at all times. Let's go to Jesse first impressions. I enjoyed this episode. I especially enjoyed being able to watch two in a row, watching the continued, you know, the what is that? I can't even remember who said it. I think it was 
previously on Babylon 5. <laughs> I'm just, my brain hurts. So I, I enjoyed being able to go right into the second episode. I liked the plot. I liked the continued character development of some of the more upfront characters. And I've recently figured out that Daylin's um, bone absolutely creeps me out. Like it is the most, I, I don't know if it's a texture thing, but every time I see it, I it like gives me like chills and I don't, I don't like it. It's not a pleasant feeling. Um, so I'm not sure when this happened <laughs> is the first time I noticed it. So um, but other than that, I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, both of the episodes. And I I'm like I say this every week, but I'm starting to really enjoy this show. Do you have some kind of hidden trauma with head bones? Of some I don't sort? know. Did, Maybe you see like like some... a, did you see like a, a compound fracture one time? And you can I don't think so. It? Maybe it's some like past life trauma that I'm carrying with me. I'm not sure. You know, the one thing I will tell you uh, is uh, that thro- throws me off on this, this two-parter. Because B5 doesn't have too many two-parters. That's not a spoiler. It's just true. But um, I'm so used to Star Trek. At the uh, beginning of the second episode, it goes, and now the conclusion, or now the continuation. And it was just like, Garibaldi just keeps talking. We're just going to start the episode. It's going to be great. John, first impressions. I I had kind of an uneven like and dislike of this episode. Uh, But actually, before that, so I want to ask a question, which is unusual. But... I just, I don't think I have to say it. Was this always intended to be a two-parter? Because to your point, when you said that, it felt like a chop right there where it, where it cut. Yeah, I was actually going to bring this up a little bit later, but what happened was Europe is weird. Hi, our Europe listeners. And Europe uh, markets love TV movies, especially in the 90s, more so than American audiences did. So The Gathering, which was a TV movie two-parter, did really well in European markets. So JMS was asked to do another two-parter that could be sold as a B5 movie overseas. So this would be two-parter in the United States and be turned into a B5 telemovie uh, for European markets. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Just the the cut, you know, the traditional American cut, right? You just set it up. And so, um, <clears throat> but uh, to Justin's point, um, I also was very interested in the auxiliary plot with the Mars thing. So, um, you know, we'll talk about that later and obviously hope to get way more of that. I really like that. Um, Blondo, you know, MVP of this episode for me. So anytime we get lots of Londo, I'm loving it. But there were some things that I, I didn't quite care for. The Garibaldi, I guess, love plot line, whatever you want to call it. Again, we can get in details. That didn't really work for me. Some of the humor felt a little forced. So overall, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Like I said, to Jesse's point as well. I mean, I'm enjoying watching them every week now. It's not, you know, I, I remember at the beginning where I was like, man, I hate this show. And God, am I really like this yeah. through this whole thing? And um, now, you know, I kind of look forward to the episodes and, and doing this. And so um, this wasn't one of the stronger episodes. Uh, I enjoyed it probably more than TKO, but, um, you know, not as much as say, uh, you know, uh, Born of the Purple or anything like that. But, um, you know. It was okay. I'll get into more detail when we, we dive into it. Sure. Let's go over to Nicole next. First impressions. So it's funny that John just said that because I actually had the opposite um, thoughts. Uh, I really enjoyed the Garibaldi love story because you get a little bit more background in Garibaldi. And I might be a little biased because Garibaldi is one of my favorites. Um, but what I really liked about this episode is everybody played a part in this episode. From Talia to, I mean, the doctor was in it minimally to, you know, Delenn, to Londo. I mean, every, there was a good amount of everybody in this and everybody had a pretty integral part and a really interesting story. And um, it just all kind of played together really well. Um, I liked the humor put in there. 
Um, you know, like for example, when Garibaldi was really sad and Lando cheered him up and was like, their friendship is just so sweet to me. Um, I just really love that. And I thought that the timing was really good because, you know, it was really heavy. It was serious. It was kind of like, you know, doom and gloom. And then there was some highlights of laughter and, and humor and uh, kind of sprinkled in. So it didn't kind of, it wasn't a complete downer. It was, you know, um, I feel like it had a little bit of everything. It had a little bit of action. It had a little bit of suspense. It had a lot of sass for my Ivanova. It had um, the standoff with Pearson Sinclair. I mean, it was just really, I thought this was a really jam-packed episode. And I thought from start to finish, everything was told. It like flowed really well. And it, the storyline was is, was really good. And I just really liked a lot of the good one-liners. I liked a lot of the dynamic. I, I forget, was it Andrew, uh, the Delenn and Garibaldi thing? You don't see them together a lot. Um, you know, so I thought it was really cool that they paired up characters that don't really have a lot of scenes together, like Delenn and Londo. I don't know. I really, really liked this one. I would probably say, like, this is the one I've been most excited about since Signs and Portents. Total opposite of John, but... That's what I thought. Emily, first impressions. I really liked this one. I did think it was good. I did like seeing more of Delyn. She's finally back. Um, but I'm getting really sick and tired of the Earth Alliance. And I'm still not convinced the president even exists. And this continuing to like just <laughs> throw shit on Sinclair and then being like, yeah whatever you know you deal with it and uh i just it, i find it very aggravating what captain pierce was not your favorite character of all time no <laughs> not, not a favorite i have a feeling we'll talk about captain pierce in a bit so let's yeah. go to our first ones those who have seen the entire show let's go to mike first First impressions on Voice in the Wilderness. Uh, I really like this episode. For me, it kind of boils down to uh, it has some really nice character moments between different people. It's It's got some nice Londo interaction. It's uh, sadly lacking in Jakar. He's not in it at all. Neither is uh, Lanier or Veer. Um, but it kind of boils down to it's a big old space mystery. And I like that. I like the whole planet full of unknown machinery. What does it do? How does it work? Um, you know, and it, and it leaves a lot of heavy implication for where, where things could go in the future. So I really, I really dig that. I also liked a lot of the other secondary plot with Mars. I think it's super interesting to, to bring the world to life by having lots of stuff popping off in different places at the same time. That's it for my first impression. I really like this one. Blake, first impressions. This is probably one of my favorite episodes slash set of episodes from the first season. I think this is where the writing starts getting really good, which ironically, this is not the original version of what was supposed to be the two-parter. <laughs> um, and I'm sure we'll get some more into that. But yeah, this oh, was Blake, not go, was... Blake, feel free to tell the story. You, okay. I, I, know, I know where you're going. Go ahead. So JMS actually got very, very sick during the first season, but due to the schedules, could not uh, take time off. And actually, when he wrote uh, the episode for... Uh, Quality like, of Mercy. Uh, yeah, Quality of Mercy. When he wrote Quality of Mercy, he does not remember writing that episode at all. <laughs> he has no recollection of writing that. He was on a medical-induced high. <laughs> yeah. And so he wrote this one at approximately the same time because he knew they wanted this two-parter uh, for Europe and Asia, actually, was the other one, Japan. Um, the Gathering was doing, like, super big on Laserdisc in Japan and China, or Japan and the uh, Asian Pacific. So they wanted to do this two-parter. And he wrote the original script. And when he came out of his stupor, he had submitted it to the folks that were doing the story editing. And I guess before they could even read it, he called it was like, yeah, don't bother. Just send it back. I'm redoing it. <laughs> he, when he came out of it, he saw just how bad it was and rewrote it to this. But I think this is, you know, this quality of mercy, these later production episodes, you start to see the writing tighten up. 
the character development really kick in as well as, I mean, really setting the pieces on the chessboard for what's to come. Kevin, first impressions. You know, the, the first one, you know, it, it's a little on the slow side and then it does ramp up. The, the two episode arc is very good. Uh, in the end, I do enjoy the, the Delenn parts of this, the Londo parts of this. Um, I, I still think they're not writing anything for Andrea Thompson. Uh, I mean, she was in the episode and they just kind of gloss over her almost entirely. I do like uh, Ron Canada being in this episode. I thought he was uh, a really strong acting presence, even though you may not like his character in this one. Uh, I, I I definitely enjoy this episode. I think that uh, it as as a character piece and as a world building piece, it, it definitely uh, really sets us on the road for uh, what's to come. Yeah, you guys hit on almost everything I was going to hit on, so I don't have too much for first impressions. I will say... For me, this feels like the pilot we should have gotten at the beginning of the season. And now this is production order 20 and 21. So they, as Blake has already mentioned, they're kind of doing full steam ahead in terms of writing, production, CGI is getting better, all that. But, you know, can you imagine if this was the pilot instead of the gathering? Now, of course, we got some build up to this like with Mars and everything else that we wouldn't have gotten, but it's just a more solid set of episodes. And it's just more, it looks like quality TV more than what we've had before. And that's a good sign, I think, for what's to come. And obviously, I know it is, but I think it is. Let's go ahead and start talking about the episode. John. Yeah, so I'll jump into the stuff that I absolutely loved, um, which is obviously the Londo portion of the episode. Um, Happy he was in it, back in it, and not just in it, but playing lots of important parts in it with lots of different interactions um, with different characters. Um, even though I didn't like the Garibaldi love part, um, I, mean, I do agree with Nicole. Their conversation and that whole, that whole, everything about that scene, I absolutely loved. Obviously, Londo's delivery on the story, he was talking about his ex-wife. I thought he was talking about Justin. I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, but that, that was a, a really sweet interaction. I also liked that he stayed Londo and stuck Garibaldi with the bill, which I thought was also hilarious. And then his... You know, obviously showing his smarts, right? So he he pieces it together and realizes, hey, look, they found something. And, you know, damn it, if we're not getting our piece of it too, um, which actually led to what I thought was the funniest line. And I don't know why, um, but, you know, I mentioned that I thought some of the humor was forced, but when <laughs> Lando asked Sinclair to basically like, you're going to cut me in, right? And the, the delivery that he gives on the no, I don't know what it was, but it just set me just reeling in laughter. Um and then, yeah, the, the part where he, you know, even if it wasn't totally altruistic because he got some concession from Delenn, but basically volunteering to potentially sacrifice himself. Um, I just thought you got a good overall picture of Londo, um, all of it, the funny, the highs, the, the, the selflessness, the smarts. The, I mean, everything I like about the character was in this episode. A plus Londo episode. Nicole. Uh, one thing I wanted to add about his Londo observations was Londo flying the ship was hilarious. He like had no idea what he was doing at the same time. He's like, if I was a thruster, where would I be? But he was just laughing. And like Delenn and um, was it Drawl or sitting in the back? Like, what the hell is happening? Like, why did we let him drive? Like something so simple as that just made me laugh so hard. But yeah, I, I agree with everything he said about Londo's deliveries. Londo just sticking, you know, giving this sweet heartfelt moment with Garibaldi and then sticking him with a bill. Hilarious to me. And I really liked that interaction with him. But I think he did develop a lot in this one. But one of my favorite parts about this episode was Ivanova was just so strong in this one. I mean, obviously... I know we'll probably talk about the B5 mantra 
later, you know, the Babylon five mantra, but she said a lot of really funny things um, about, uh, let me see here. I wrote them all down. Um, she said that uh, it's a Russian thing. We have to catalog our stupidity. That one made me laugh. And then when she said a uh, good thing, I'm Russian, I'm used to hopeless situations. Just the way she delivered those killed me. Um, and then one of my all time favorite lines of the whole episode was uh, that was the worst case of testosterone uh, passing. Like, uh, what was it? Poisoning. Poisoning. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That she's ever seen. And I was like, get it girl i agree um but yeah overall just like i thought like there was a lot of good moments in this episode like you know um i thought i know john said some of the humor he thought was kind of forced but i thought it was pretty good um the way that they weaved it in but i also liked that they actually had all these um serious moments in this you know um and characters were really stepping up to the plate when needed um i mean one thing i, I wrote down to which i thought was really sweet um where if you know basically if the shit hit the fans sinclair asked garibaldi to make sure ivanova gets on the last ship out because she has her whole career in front of her and he knew that she would want to stay and he said that he would drug her and throw her on the ship if he had to you know um i just i don't know i it just shows how selfless i feel like sinclair is and then it also kind of piggybacks into what Delenn said about the reason that they didn't tell Sinclair and Garibaldi is because she knew Garibaldi would, or Sinclair would volunteer to be in the machine. So it was really all of their strengths and weaknesses were highlighted in this episode. And I think for me, that was one of the biggest points of, you know, I have pages and pages of notes that go on, but other people want to talk. But I just really thought like the, the humor, the character development and the plot points were all just so on par. And I just really enjoyed this whole episode. And of course, Earth Alliance acting like dicks again. So, um, you know, that wasn't a shock either. I, but yeah, so overall, I just really feel like the quality was so there. Justin. I, I think I'm beginning to realize that with all of how all the races kind of pay lip service to the Babylon Project, I'm not really sure how many of them actually have faith in it, especially the Earth Alliance. I can kind of see some of that in just the way that Pierce and the Hyperion just show up out of nowhere and says, we're taking control because we don't want the other races to have any part of this technology. Who's even running the show in the Earth Alliance anymore? Because it really sounds like Santiago was out of the loop on what was happening um, out on out on Epsilon 3. Um, and I just, yeah, I just, it's not looking good for the EA. They're kind of really showed their asses on this one, um, by charging in and really threatening to get into a fight with the Babylon five station. If, if earth couldn't take control of this planet and keep it from everyone else, you know, whereas, and everyone else is right. The Centauri's help pay for that station. They should get a cut of whatever's found there. Like, and EA just kind of wants to take everything for itself. Every, every time we have Mars in any kind of sci-fi, it always ends up becoming rebellious and independent and stuff like that. And I just think it's kind of interesting to see just how this hits home with a lot of people on how Sinclair was born on Mars. Ivanova, Garibaldi, they all kind of have ties to it. And but and even the the, the bar fight uh, where Garibaldi attacks the guys who was talking about killing all the Martians and just gassing them all. Like, it's definitely something that I think is going to be around for a while. I'm very curious to see where it goes. Blake. It's, as you, you know, Nicole mentioned the quality on the episode, and that's the other part with this one, you know, is as you said, it was always meant to be a two-parter to be a TV movie. And just the number of new sets that they made for this one, um, JMS actually commented on that one, that, you know, these were not redresses. These were not retouched sets. They built new sets for this. They I think this was actually probably the most expensive set they did out of the first season because the, the CGI was 
I mean, they stepped up across the board with this one on the CGI, the music, the, the set. So this one had a lot into it production value-wise. But I also think you're right when you mentioned this was the pilot we should have got for the series. And I really think if you ignore a lot of season one, this one I think really does serve as a pilot for what we're going to get uh, going forward. I- I'm making an assumption here, but my knowledge of... TV, especially back then, is you don't get budgets per episode. You get budgets per season. So sometimes you have episodes that are produced on the cheap so you can have some money later on. And I really see this as um, their ability to use some of the season one budget to start beefing up for season two in terms of their work with CGI, but also with these sets that we will obviously see again. They're not going to tear them down after one uh one show. So I think they're really trying to beef up production value as we move towards season two. The other part I mentioned, and we've also mentioned uh, JMS and his use of the use sets and the fans, and even the ship, the uh, Hyperion in this one. That was the original hosting site for some of the B5 mm-hmm. fan groups. So I mean, even the shout out he did for the fans that got him this far in this one. And I think that continues to this day. I mean, we've talked about this before, but. I don't know of any other showrunner in television, and not that JMS is running a show at the moment, but I don't know of any other showrunner in television who utilizes his fan base as well, or their fan base as well, as JMS does, because he learned how to do it back in the 90s and tapped into it ever since. Actually, he was starting to do it back in the late 80s. Same idea. Emily? Kind of jump back to what Justin was saying about the Earth Alliance, but is there anyone in Earth Alliance who doesn't hate Sinclair? Because, again, we have another episode with some overly aggressive wanker coming in, trying to oust Sinclair from his position. It's like they keep doing this. I don't know. Senator Hidoshi and President uh, Santiago obviously like Sinclair. They just were kind of slow in the uptake. (laughs) See, I question if they like him because they don't seem to care too much about everything he has to deal with. They're just like, oh, sorry, we can't do it right now. We'll get to it later. Or just like... They're playing niceties without actually giving a shit, it seems like. Imagine if we'll use Oregon because Blake Blake (laughs) always has fun with Oregon. Imagine if Oregon decided to secede from the Union and at the very same time, the commanding general of Fort Bragg calls the president and says he needs help with a authority issue. I think the president's going to care more about the secession of Oregon at that moment. And I get let's, that. Let's not it's... laugh about this, though, Scott. We have Eastern Oregon. I'm not convinced they wouldn't do Dude, it. If given the I, was, I was in Idaho, which is like Western Oregon. So, I mean, Eastern, Eastern Oregon. So I understand. <laughs> and I get that. But, I mean, this was essentially, like, not international issue. But you know what I mean? It It wasn't just about someone coming in trying to oust him. It was about trying to do relations with, like, another species that they didn't know apparently had claimed to this planet. I mean, that seems kind of like, hey, maybe at least give him two minutes of your time. But it seems like everyone on Earth Alliance is out to get him. Like, they're salty that the Minbari put him in charge of Babylon 5, and they're trying to undermine that as best as they can. Yeah, I know that was talked about, uh, I think, in a previous episode. Sinclair's posting to Babylon 5 rubbed a lot of people in the Earth Alliance mm-hmm. the wrong way. And I th- and especially in the military. So I think that's where we're starting to get some repercussions where people are showing up and being like, 
I don't like you, you know, and you know why. So I'm going to be a dick. Yeah. And there's no respect for him or his position. Cause even if they don't like it, that's still his position. Right. No, I agree. I think you guys are going full tilt too much on this too. I mean, you're, you're now making assumptions about Pierce and don't get me wrong. Pierce is a complete and total idiot, but not once in this entire episode and he shows him part two did we get any semblance of pierce wants babylon five we didn't get pierce is upset that he's oh i there. don't think that he wants it. oh no i'm not saying I'm, uh, I'm actually referring to justin at this point sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's all justin's fault this time because justin's like people don't like sinclair that i don't think pierce gives a crap who's in charge of b5 he just wanted to come in and wave his big battle cruiser around i wasn't i wasn't necessarily saying pierce was that way, but just you've seen it with other military personnel through past episodes. So I think it's just kind of a carryover and some kind of mentality against Sinclair. But well, and that's that's me. Like that's exactly what I was gonna say is how many times are we gonna see people come into Babylon five and be like, Oh, I'm taking over now. This is like literally the third or fourth time we've watched this and we're only on episode what, twenty? 21. Depends on which watch, like, watch order you. But, yeah. sure. but I mean, the, the, we've only watched 20 or 21 episodes mm-hmm. and I've already seen at least three different people do this. Like they come in and be like, oh, by the way, it's mine now. Meh. Like it's it's like, how many times are we going to keep playing this this game? I'm sure a billion more. Well, the last thing I'll say to this, though, is I think as much as I think this is the best produced episode, I think this is the best episode for Sinclair in what we've seen so far because you get a lot. I mean, Nicole, you hit on his caring for his, his uh, subordinates and making sure that Ivanova it will get off the station. Also, what you read into that as well, too, is Sinclair is saying, I will go down with the station. Some of the commanding officers are going to stay behind. Sinclair's not going to leave. But then you've also got the when Pierce first shows up on the station, you have a commander, which is how that should work with a station, having a commander and not a captain, arguing with a captain and basically putting a captain in his place. So Sinclair is overstepping his rank in order to kind of push what he needs to have pushed. So Sinclair's doing a lot in this episode, too, even though he does get pushed around a lot by folks. Kevin. I, I agree with what's been said, and I, I certainly like this episode for Sinclair. I think it it really gives every facet of his personality in this one because it shows him being the diplomat and uh, helping to have an agreement between the Minbari and the, uh, the Centauri. But I'm not so sure that that scene, that first scene with Pierce uh, paints him in in the light as far as a military perspective, which I should probably let John talk about more than more than me do it. But um, I mean, you could really see that as, you know, borderline uh, insubordinate, given the fact that Pierce outranks him and was told by, you know, the brass to come in here and take charge. Um, I think he was putting himself really on a limb in that in that discussion with with Pierce. And I, I think that paints him, you know, from a military perspective in a bad light. But, you know, for the viewers and for writing, I think it'll make him a lot more likable that he's willing to to uh, stand up for what's right. You've seen that in the series up until now. And that's just another example of, you know, he's just not going to uh, think of himself at all first before he's going to think of what's best for the the people and 
the situation and for the people he cares about. Another w- part where he put himself on the line even more so is he went out to Hidoshi and basically said, I will resign. I don't want to, but I will. John? Uh, yeah, real quick before I get to the topic I want to talk about. So like everyone else, I also wrote down the same thing about Sinclair, you know, is how many times this dude can get stepped on. I actually wrote down to Kevin's point about the military side. I was like, man, it would be nice to get more of a breakdown of the rank structure here because, you know, the same thing I thought, dude, you know, when you start pulling rank on folks, I mean, that's something, but I can't figure out where Sinclair falls in terms of, of when people just show up. Now, sometimes they've said, you know, I'll rank you or whatever, but, um, but regardless that, you know, we've talked about it enough, so I'll, I'll get off that subject, but before I talk about what I want to talk about real quick, since both you and Nicole mentioned it, I actually was very put off by Sinclair's comment to Garibaldi about saving Ivanova, which is what I took that as. I thought it was kind of arrogant. I thought, here come these two dudes. They just get to take that agency away from her. Like, why can't she be heroic? I understand the thinking behind it, right? Hey, look, she's young. You know, we're the old grizzled guys. Like, she's the best of us. She needs to get off. Blah, blah. All those things you can tell yourself. But I just thought, I mean, who are you to, to decide what she wants to do? I just thought a couple of dudes trying to say, oh, yeah, we'll, you know, throw this woman off the ship if we have to. I, I, I was just put off. But what I, what I wanted to talk about, though, was so I'm sure or at least I hope you'll get way more into this beyond the rim. But one of the things that, like I was saying, kind of put me off was this MacGuffin now with this planet. Because now that that cat's out of the bag and this tech exists and this planet exists. And, you know, we saw just a little bit of it at the very beginning of the second episode with, you know, Earth Alliance already coming in and try to stake their claim. Even though Draw at the end gave this, you know, message about like, hey, look, the only people who are going to be recognized are the Babylon 5 Council. And, you know, if you try to come get us, you know, basically we'll kill you like they did the, um, uh, you know, the other species who, who were there. But I don't believe for a hot second that Earth Alliance is just going to go, okay, I guess. I mean, we just talked about how much they, you know, tear down Sinclair. So they're just going to say, okay, fine. We trust in Sinclair to hold this. I mean, the, all of the things that Pierce said, all the reasoning and the logic behind why he was there and why they were already making their moves is just, if they don't, if that's not a giant issue in season two, I'm going to be a little, a little put off because you have this just wealth of this entire planet of what they said was like the most, amazing impossible revolutionary tech ever seen and no species is are all the species are going to be okay with just sitting on it i mean this is crazy huge unless i'm just overblowing what it was presented or what i took away from the episode as how incredible this planet was and what it potentially holds you know uh, here's here's what i'll say about that without without getting into anything that comes after that scene where they just rip through three mm-hmm. ships of that species of, of the same species that the guy running the show down there um, it, it was pretty powerful. And I don't, I don't see a way for any of the species to be like, Hey, I want that stuff. I want to go get it after that display. Yeah. So, uh, that's all I got. Alliance seems like they would try though. Right. Espionage. I mean, there's there is zero doubt in my mind that one, like I said, how many people saw that? But two, Earth Alliance in and of itself is just going to be chomping at the bit to do any and everything they can to to get at it. Like what's you know, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they just I mean, sacrifice some ships. Well, let's just take a shot at it. Like why? Like what have we seen so far from Earth Alliance that has shown us caution or discretion or common sense? You you make a good point. Yeah, I think also. um... 
what you look at too is they also have to factor in that they've been told that if they land on this planet it's going to go boom and they have a big death ray like Kevin pointed out so I mean you can try you can absolutely try but you're going to kill a quarter of a million people if you aren't right and you're going to get blowed up too so I mean we Pierce shall basically see. Pierce basically tried to do that they were yeah. they were told well there's a good chance if you fly down and land on the planet it's going to make it go boom and he was like Psh. like yeah but as soon whatever. as he saw the death ray he didn't do it anymore did he <laughs> I guess and it was a big death ray Nicole it's kind of funny that we were having this discussion about Earth Alliance because the thing I wanted to point out, which I don't know if any of you guys also wrote down or noticed, was how when um, Delenn and Drawl came to visit Londo, he was a little flustered because he was studying humans. And he was saying these Earthers make no sense at all. I can't figure them out. And then Delenn was like, there are massive contradictions. I thought that was really interesting um, that they were having that discussion and then in comes Pierce with no regard trying to go down there and like, you know, just we want that tech like almost like um, uh, tunnel vision, you know, without thinking about the repercussions of what's going to happen to Babylon 5 if they go down there or if they keep messing with it, it's going to self-destruct and kill everybody. So it was just like caution was out the window. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that they pointed out like how irrational humans are sometimes. And when we have our sights set on something, it's almost like greed and power and all that stuff takes over. And I'm sorry, but Earth Alliance is just showing that, you know, they were just acting like dicks throughout this whole episode. And just overall, like they don't put out the best impression that that's not what they're fueled by is greed and power and wanting everything. Like he even said, I wrote it down. He's like, we get first dibs on this. You know, and I was like, why do you get first dibs on this? Just because it's under Babylon 5, you think you have the right to come in, take over? Like, it was such an interesting juxtaposition where they were talking about how the Earthers don't make sense. And then they literally showed how they don't make sense. So, Andrew. Yeah, one thing that I wanted to point out that uh, Justin was starting to bring up a little bit was that the bar fights uh, scene with Garibaldi when... Uh, those other guys were uh, starting to like kind of maybe, like talk shit about the uh, the Martians and how like like oh like if this is how they're gonna like if this is how they're gonna act like you know we should just gas them all and uh, I personally couldn't help but note like feel like this was an, another instance of even though this was thirty years ago almost uh, kind of an instance of art imitating reality where you know we're definitely seeing it now uh, I I know we get. Uh, so we've already gotten some uh, feedback on our discussion of the politics, but we're kind of seeing it now, you know, here in the States uh, with, uh, you know, especially with uh, immigrants and because yeah, they even specifically bring up uh, like work, like, like our tax money is going to help this colony. And, you know, and they, and this is how they're uh, expressing how grateful they are. You know, they're rebelling against us. Like we should just kill them all. Uh, from what I've seen, it's not that extreme now, but uh, there's just a little connection that I made. That was an exact thought that I had too. I mean, I, I can tell you that there are people that I've, you know, I have friends with on Facebook who post some pretty ignorant shit about like, yeah, let's have a civil war. Let's, let's 
kill those people that disagree with me. Ha ha ha. And I'm like, that's pretty dark. And, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that this episode made me think of listening to that guy at the bar talking about very casually nuking his countrymen, sending people in to execute them. We're recording this about two weeks before the election, and there are masked armed gunmen hanging outside of uh, ballot box returns in Arizona, and a federal judge just said they can do that. It's an interesting place we live in, and it'll be an interesting place we live in in 2258. Blake? So just to comment, and go back a little bit about Earth Alliance and the planet, and they didn't jump too much into it in this episode, but Earth Alliance does have first contact protocols. Um, they didn't get too in-depth into it, but a lot of the basis is also after, you know, they had first contact with Mimbari and kind of ended up in the Earth-Mimbari war because of how they did it and almost wiped out humanity. So with the planet being said it's under protection, you know, it was an alien racist planet. They handed it off under protection. I don't think Earth Alliance wanted to mess with that too much, especially after seeing the sheer power of what Epsilon 3 could do that that gave them a minute to sit there and go, we got our ass kicked the last time we tried this and they have a planet that can do it. So I think that also contributed to Earth Alliance maybe stepping back and going, yeah, let's just not try this anymore. John. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because I wrote that in my notes about that first contact protocol. Cause like, I do wish they had gone into that more because when I saw, you know, basically a two man crew, just Sinclair and Ivanova go down. I thought, first of all, it's a terrible idea. Who goes down with just two people? Why are you not bringing it back up? Why are you not bringing security again? Like Sinclair going cowboy. You've been so not, you've been so good. Sinclair, And now you're back on your bullshit. And then I thought, do they not have legit like policies in place for making contact with a brand new species? It seems like it would be something way beyond his pay grade and would be way more of a bigger deal than just let's go grab the old transport and head on down, see what we find. Then down the guys in the SWAT armor is going to really do well in the first contact procedures. I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying what it should be. <laughs> you know, going guns blazing, this, that, the other. Um, I just thought it would be more. I actually thought, so it was kind of funny because I wrote down too. I thought old Freddie Foreshadow, the geologist or whatever that guy was, I thought for sure that guy was a Star Trek red shirt. As soon as he started talking, he was like, <laughs> tomorrow, I thought that guy's dead. That guy's about as dead as a doornail. And shockingly, he didn't get like blown up. He absolutely did not show up in part two. So <laughs> we'll just read into that as you I will. actually really like that character. Well, and, and JMS, even to your point, John, JMS even commented that the protocol, you know, as crappy as it may be, he actually commented the way he wrote it was the protocol was at least one, preferably two command officers or who do the initial contact. Mike, I agree with you too. I like the uh, happy-go-lucky archaeologist scientist yeah. guy. Science He's is like, fun. For science. <laughs> I'm going to explode tomorrow. I'm going to learn something. And I'm going to wind up in some research papers. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Jesse. So just to, John literally just went into what I was thinking. It's like, you've got number one and number two on a ship together. And they're just going to fly down some unknown hole and get out and explore. Like, it just doesn't seem realistic to me. Everyone gets a promotion. Everyone does. It's well, I mean, like who when, does that lead, who's next? Like Garibaldi? Like no, Garibaldi is non-com. It would not be Garibaldi. So who yeah. runs next? Who's number three? Somebody we don't know. Oh. <laughs> but okay. Probably one of those, uh, those CNC guys that hangs out all the time. <laughs> that guy that answers the phone on CNC. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they, they did make mention of a major at one point. It was uh, not a screen character, but uh, she she says, hey, I need you to take uh, call major so and so and get him up here to take over for me. I think it was in eyes. 
Mm, could um, be. Yeah. So there, there is, you know, a mechanism somewhere, somehow that they really don't get into, but it really seemed like at the end of the first episode that Garibaldi was in charge because he was the one calling the shots in CNC and he's not a naval officer. So I, you know, as much as I like JMS's writing, there, there were a couple of issues in, in this, and, and don't get me wrong, I like these episodes, but there are a couple of issues in, in this episode, episode arc. See, I'm, I'm, I enjoy a good canon fight and a good, you know, uh, discussion about the inner workings of the universe and stuff, but I also, I look at the lens of these episodes cost $625,000 an episode. So this two-parter got a little bit over a million bucks, whereas in at the same time being filmed, Deep Space Nine gets two million bucks an episode. So they just can't afford that many people on the set. <laughs> so, I do, I it's like, Yeah, it's like Franklin is definitely not the only doctor on this station, but <laughs> he's what we get and that one person from Believers. That's it. <laughs> Every time we talk about commanding officers getting killed and cutting off the head of the command staff, I always think back to the episode of Deep Space Nine on the Defiant where Nog is talking to O'Brien. He's like, does that mean I'll be a commander of the ship? Yeah, but if you're captain of the ship, everyone else is dead. <laughs> so, yeah, you get promoted, but everyone We're is incapacitated, dead. maybe. <laughs> John, what do you got? Well, Andrew touched on it a little bit, um, and I mentioned it in my intro that, you know, I was, I was really intrigued and really drawn into the Mars um, rebellion portion of the episode. And, and I hope, and it seems like, and I'm sure you'll tell me, yeah, we'll talk about it beyond the rim, that we'll dive into that more because that seems like a pretty big plot point coming up. Um, but I was, I was super intrigued. I, I wasn't going to save these for the questions, so they're more of a, I kind of want to just confirm what I thought I heard and what I was hearing was that, so humanity colonized Mars, basically, right? And took and set up a, a, a shop. And now what's happening is the people who are born, the Sinclairs, the Garibaldis, the people who are born on Mars now want to say, enough of you Earth, we're our own thing. We want to rule ourselves, be our own situation, right? Yep. Okay, so it would be like an intergalactic civil war almost. Yeah, well, a revolutionary war, 1776 on Mars. Okay, that's what I thought. That's what I thought I heard because I wrote down. I was like, "Wait, we're talking about human on human, right? This isn't some like Martian." Okay, um, I so mean, I'm sure there's some aliens living on Mars and Earth, but not many based on what we've seen with Earth Alliance. But yeah, so very intrigued with that. Hope they dive way deep into that, and would also hope that. And it seems like we'll get you know all of the political fallout that that could drive those stories, right? So Martians are trying to declare their independence. You know, who's going to be, since you mentioned 1776, who's going to be the France that throws their weight behind them? Is it the Mimbari? Is it the Centauri? Is it, you know, who's going to help them out? So I really, really hope that turns into a giant storyline, um, maybe in season two or at the end of the season, because I really, really enjoyed that. We will talk about all of that beyond the rim. I hate you so much. Okay. <laughs> I know you do. Can, can we take a moment and talk about how multiple different people had a hallucination of an alien crying out, help me, and nobody said anything to anyone about it? That <laughs> was next on my list. If, you, if you're walking list. down a hallway and you just have this weird, no-eared alien pop up and go, help me, yeah. you're probably not going mean, to tell anybody either. Sinclair's in his room and he's just like, boy, I'm tired. Londo's <laughs> like, boy, I've had too much to drink. <laughs> Rawls, the only one who like did anything about it. He was like, hey, the guy called my name. I'm going to go... Yeah, yeah. he didn't even see it. Yeah, Drew's the only one who didn't see the guy. He's like, I heard my name be called. What's up? I love how they they just waltz into Med Bay and they just go into the sealed room with no lock. With yes, a uh, 
decontamination uh but they're just like no you can't come in uh okay well we're coming in anyway uh okay sure and i, I from a from an actor perspective for that for that scene too i was wondering you know how tough that would be in that room to to breathe because i'm guessing that what those two actors were wearing uh were probably just for show and they're blowing tons and tons of uh smoke or something else in there it looks like yeah. a halon system <laughs> they either got a really industrial sized fogger or they've got the dry ice going on overboard yeah. and remember the um the, what we what jms uh states in his autobiography is uh, and we've heard this before from folks is this was these sets were built on an old uh hot tub factory floor and there was so much dust and gunk in the air that when they would walk out to their cars after work, their cars were just covered in crud from the air. So not only are you sucking in that fog or whatever it is, you are sucking in industrial whatever from the air of that hot tub factory that you are working on for 12-hour, 14-hour days. It's a great place to be. Nicole? Was there a reason that it was them? I guess this would be more of a question, but like, I was trying to figure out or wonder, like, were they specifically chosen or was it just they happened to be there or like, what was the significance of choosing them? I mean, besides draw taking over, which I kind of predicted that, you know, when they well, were interacting. But, let's be honest. You have two main cast members and draw go down to the surface. Which one's not coming yeah. back? <laughs> right. Even before that, when the guy was talking to him, I was like, oh, yeah, he's going to have him do it. But I just wondered if there was... Have you met my friend Cannon Fodder? He's here this episode. Hi, <laughs> Cannon Fodder. Well, they they broadcasted it with him immediately talking off the go uh, about you know the propensity for self sacrifice. I mean they 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 broadcast right. it from the go. Right. I just I didn't know if there was a significance of those people being chosen to um, contact or if it just was like a random kind of thing. Well, I mean, I think Delin asked the same question at the end. She said, "I know that if." Sinclair would went down on that uh, shuttle with us. Sinclair would have stayed down there because of who he is. So she knew it was uh, Varn is the guy's name uh, was reaching out to people. I think probably that he knew would be willing to make this sacrifice. So that says something about draw. Dude, you know, Londo was having fun. I think honest to God, if Varn had turned to Londo right then and said, get your ass in the machine. I think Londo would have done it. I'm going to jump in here because I know John is chomping at the bit to say something about it, and I just want to steal his thunder completely. I, I did think this was an episode where we not only got a lot of fun Londo interaction, but I think we learned a little bit about Londo's past and some stuff that maybe we didn't see it before. The fact that he mentioned specifically leading military operations or that he could fly apparently pretty well. And Except like for you forgot man, where all the buttons were. Well, <laughs> yeah, which is some of that misplaced humor that I think others were talking about. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I loved the whole hokey pokey scene, but it was like the the weird. It was like the, the weirdest thing in the whole episode that this didn't fit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think you're right. There's sort of a question of did we did Lando get chosen to go down there because he struck a deal with the land and now, you know, he wanted that favor, that, that wealth, or did he go down there because, you know, 
they know he's a guy that's looking for some meaning in his life and uh this is an opportunity to reclaim some of his glory and die a hero you know and i think that's kind of where you're going with it how is this misplaced humor sir you put your right hand in, you put your right hand out, you put your whole self in, and you turn yourself about. You do the hokey pokey, you give a little shout. That's what it's all about. It doesn't mean anything. I have been studying it for seven days. I had the computer analyze it. I swear to you, it does not mean a thing. We've come at a bad time. I'll, I'll I let you finish because I like it. <laughs> I'll tell you why it's misplaced because if they had opened the two-part episode with a scene where that was part of it, fantastic. But they dropped it in, I'm pretty sure after we were already hearing about the Mars rebellion and Garibaldi's dying possibly dead girlfriend and the other stuff. It was it was an awkward pause in an otherwise very serious narrative yeah i thought there was a little oh. bit of awkward editing in this episode too i i thought somewhat some of the stuff was kind of misordered overall i i still think it's it's one of the strongest sets even even given some of the problems in season one. First off i, I want to point out mira furlong her delivery of that like we've come in a bad time makes me laugh yeah. every single time she's great at that but come on yeah, okay, the editing, you can't control editing, but humor is humor, whether you're at a funeral or you're at a hockey game, you're going to have this really bad humor. So I think it's just part of life. I like this stuff that gets inserted in randomly. I I think you can have a Civil War on Mars and laugh at the same time, because if not, I mean, you're going to go freaking nuts. In real life, yes, but it's weird in a TV show. <laughs> eh, my kind of TV show, I like it. Just me. I also like kissing with my eyes open. Not really, but John, what do you got? <laughs> well, since Mike stepped all over it, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it was it was going to be some Lando talk. So I will say, uh, I agree. I thought the joke was, I don't know, odd. I also thought the way when he set it up, I thought he was going to sing the happy birthday song because I thought he mentioned that the kids, they're sung to their kids all the time. And I thought, oh, well, you could paying for the happy birthday song okay let's shout out some cash i'm pretty sure in 94 it was owned by michael jackson i, I think i'm right on that i'm oh, i'm sure it would have cost a pretty penny um and then but yeah so seeing or hearing i guess more more accurately about londo's military past um uh was awesome i mean again just more every time this dude's lair uh you know the the shrek onion that is londo um every time another layer gets peeled back i just i love fall in love even more um and when they said there's that madman in the transport i immediately knew what the next scene was going to be which was londo behind the wheel and i was so here for it and i absolutely loved every part about it um it you know, everything about that was, was great. I will say, um, as I'll get off the love train just for a second though, um, while I enjoyed him talking shit about Jakar and, and that playful, um, you know, they hate us, we hate them. I did think, man, you know, I just can't agree with that false equivalency with his, his math, um, example there, you know, the, the physics, uh, every reaction deserves an equal and, you know, whatever reaction, 
Um, mainly because I hope he doesn't really believe it. Like I, I still feel that buddy comedy, that buddy cop comedy energy coming from the two of them. So I really hope that it's more of a facade and that he's just pretending to hate Jakar because, you know, maybe a Hatfields McCoy, like, Oh yeah, we, of course we have to hate them. They hate us, but really I like this dude and really, you know, we get along and we can work together. So that was the only part of the Lando experience that I thought, man, I really hope he doesn't believe that. And he generally hates Jakar. Kevin. Um, you know, the the scene with Garibaldi, um, you know, I, you you wonder a couple of times in this season if Londo is cultivating his relationship with Garibaldi just because Garibaldi can get him out of shit. I think he showed in this episode that he really does care about Garibaldi. I think he he thinks they're alike. He said that before, but this was a you know, despite sticking him with the bill, I think that. Uh, it really does show that he he appreciates Garibaldi and that, you know, he feels like if they're not friends, they are definitely quite friendly. It really makes for uh, both a heartfelt scene and a funny scene. And I think thinking about this, this episode set, it's almost my favorite scene of the entire of the entire two two part episode. JMS was asked about the Garibaldi and Londo friendship back in the day, and he said, Londo and Garibaldi really are two sides of the same coin in some ways. There's an odd friendship there, almost grudgingly. Londo has little to gain by cheering up Garibaldi, except a drink perhaps, but that's what friends do. Justin. I mean, I guess I guess I'm still not 100% convinced um, that Londo doesn't have some kind of motive in, in befriending Garibaldi. You think everyone has a motive um, and everyone's a sleeper agent. So go ahead and continue. Yeah, why not? Because it's true. Because <laughs> it's true. Um, but I did I did really enjoy that scene. And, you know, you get the, you know, if things get bad, you know, just think to yourself, is it really all that bad? You know, it was a good story. And Londo married a stripper. And John loves strippers, too. So it's a, it's a good scene. Londo definitely has a type, and they tend to be on poles. I will tell you right now, that was the most accurate thing I'd ever seen on television. A military guy marrying a stripper? <laughs> I mean, is the sky blue? <laughs> was she Centauri or was she human? And if she's human, you know where my brain went. Like, how's that I, work? I don't think that's mm -hmm. compatible. <laughs> oh, I guess I'm not the only one talking about Londo's thing again. I don't think humans well, and Centauri are on right the there. I, I mean... There, no, I'm not even gonna go down that road. I'm not <laughs> gonna do it. I'm not, not gonna You're do all it. All welcome for that visual that I just brought to you. There's, oh my god. I'm gonna talk about why the uh, laser disc of, is so popular in Japan. Can you give us a diagram for that one, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta do some yoga first. <laughs> Lots all of the holes. Lots all of them. Of all at once. You're welcome. I want to talk about Garibaldi and his love story, if you will, and why. I didn't take to it because uh, this is, I've said it in other episodes where I've, I thought sometimes they force stuff and it doesn't land because you haven't let it gestate enough. So last episode I talked about Ivanova's relationship with her father and it felt like, you know, episode of the week type of, let's try to jam an entire relationship that then we're expected to kind of feel a real emotional hit with it. And in this episode, the Garibaldi, like apparently he's been in love with this woman for what, two or three years. And it's the love of his life. And, but all we've seen is he's been a poon hound on the station, just trying to get with any and everything he can, which really undercuts me thinking, Oh, this is the greatest love story of our time. So to me, that's why it didn't really work. 
Um, and you know, I was like, okay, well she's married and having a kid. So thank God that's the end of it. We won't have to see that anymore. I, I appreciated the attempt at the development of Garibaldi's character and the growth and, and making him a little more well-rounded than just said Poonhound. But I thought it might stick a little bit more had we had more time with it, right? Even a, a thrown away line in a previous episode or just a, something besides, you know, this, this one and done. Jesse. I want to kind of follow up on John's comment earlier about Ivanova and we can talk agency if you'd like to about the conversation between Sinclair um, and Garibaldi. Um, I find it highly offensive that they were going to toss her into the last ship off and not let her be, um, the hero like and i guess this is just exactly what john said earlier and i I, i'm not even gonna like um allude to agreeing with him but like it's (laughs) it's so obnoxious like because because as number two in command she has every right to go down with that ship now yes she's got her whole she's got her whole career ahead of her and she's younger and that's fine but why are we not tossing other officers in as well. We didn't talk about any of the male officers. We just talked about Ivana. And it's like, it was, it was a little obnoxious and I don't appreciate it. Like it's still very clear drawn lines of these traditional gender roles and, oh, don't let the little lady go down with the ship. You better, you don't toss her in. Was, I didn't like it. I disliked it. I, I have to, I, I really have to disagree. I don't think there was a gender role you know, um, thought there in Sinclair's mind. I think it was all about, he cares about Ivanova and she is the youngest of the uh, people that I care about. And, you know, she's on the command staff. They've worked together closely. And it it wasn't a, I want to save the little lady type of thing. It was that I want to make sure that she is safe. And Garibaldi understood, it sounded like to me that that was probably going to mean he was going to have to go down with it too. And he was fine with it too. But I I did not get the impression that it was that it was a gender thing. I got the impression that it was she's younger than both of us. And she has more promise than the two of us. And I want her to be safe. Well, sure. If she had been a man, I would agree with you. But she's not. And so you're being sexist, Jesse. Well, no, because it was it was absolutely like because they know she's strong enough that she's gonna say absolutely fucking not. I'm going down with this ship. How many of them have to go down with station. the ship? And 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 isn't that Sinclair's decision? Thank I'm you. I'm sorry. God damn it. The station. And I did it too. Uh, <laughs> is isn't isn't that? You know, Sinclair's job to do that, isn't that his decision as the commanding officer to say, uh, that's my job, that's what I'm going to do, and I don't want her going down with it too? Sure, but as number two in, in charge, she has every single same duty as he does to get everybody off that ship before she gets off. She's got the most promise of any of them to go go very far with her career, and she's very young. I just, I think that's what it's all about. Well, we all have our opinions. Absolutely. Have every right to be wrong. <laughs> and Jesse's well, wrong in this see, case, but Nicole, go. See, I, I agree kidding. with Kevin. I agree with Kevin <laughs> on this one because here's the thing: like, I don't think it was a oh, we got to keep the little lady safe. If you look at it, when there's a uh, threat at DC, for example, the president and the vice president are never in the same spot. So it makes sense that the number one commanding officer would stay with you know the going down, but like they have to have one person off of there to run things 
right? That's kind of how I looked at it. So I agree with that, except the fact that they were both on a ship exploring some random fucking unknown territory. And so like, I, I, yes, one of them in theory should be able to get off and go and be able to run another Babylon six or 17, whatever we're talking about. But these two are not, these two are both putting themselves at risk in the same ship. Yeah. Well, Garibaldi was going with her. That's the thing. So Sinclair was, in his mind, the only one staying. Mm, Garibaldi didn't say that. Garibaldi did not say that. He said he would get her on the transport. That's all he said. He said, I'll talk to her. Throw her through the door, drugged, possibly. Which yeah, it it was not a like, good thing, but no, there was no assumption like that be going. No, no, no. I, I read that completely differently, Nicole. There's no way Garibaldi gets on that transport. No, he oh, understands what I thought. He's staying that's behind. Yeah. Yeah. This is he all about that him. look when Sinclair mentioned it. He absolutely understood he, they would be left on the station. Because they're, they're both going to have roles here. They're going to have Sinclair is going to be manning the station to make sure that it's operational. Like security, as long as it, yeah. And then, and then, yeah, exactly. So Garibaldi is going to be crowd control. And if you've ever watched any kind of show that deals with evacuation, I'm thinking Expanse in that one episode, you need crowd control and that person's not getting on the ship. And I agree in theory, Nicole, you're a hundred percent right. Like one should go and one should stay. But so I, I absolutely can see where the mentality of, I don't think that it was about traditional gender roles, but it's hard as a woman in a male dominated um, career, not to take that as, oh, little, you know, little Ivanova, we got to get, you know, get her safe. That's how I watched it. And and that just comes from my personal experiences, but it's not that I can't see it from like you guys' point. And and I agree with her. Like she wasn't even there. They're talking about her. And yeah. what they're going to do like to her. Yeah, I see both of your points, but I just didn't take it that way in this specific instance. And I also work in a male dominated industry and right. I've had to claw my way up and I've dealt with sexist bosses that have mistreated me because I'm a female. So I get it, but I just don't, I don't know. Maybe that's just me being a softie. I just didn't think they had an ill intention. I think it's up for interpretation to each of us based on our life experiences. And you said exactly that, Jesse. I know I said I was offended, but it doesn't like it doesn't. It's just at this point in my life, after 41 years of seeing it happen regularly, it's it it's just part of like there. It's clear that we have to work harder sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's clear that we have to go to lengths with our schedules and our careers. And there's different things when it comes to like having families and, you know, women are asked, so they shouldn't be, but I've been asked in in interviews if I'm going to have children and it's like, that's illegal. You can't do that. But that's just a typical example of how we have to work in different ways than men do. So you're a hundred percent right. I do believe it is about experience. Andrew, would you like to tell us about the women experience in business? Go ahead. Talk to us, Andrew. <laughs> uh, surprisingly, no. I wanted to go back to uh, our conversation with uh, Garibaldi and Talia. Uh, I, I don't remember what it was, but uh, like the specifics of it, but basically Garibaldi insinuated that he knew something that uh, only if, if you were a member of Psychor that you would know. And, and Talia later mentions it to this higher up in Psychor and Basically, it sounded to me like uh, like Garibaldi is probably going to be in a lot of trouble because, uh, like, uh, as Talia said, Garibaldi didn't necessarily confirm that he actually know what it was or like actually knew that it that whatever what it was. I don't 
remember uh that he didn't confirm that he knew that it, it existed uh either way uh as a whole still seemed to see it as a problem yeah i thought they i thought he's said that basically there was a like a secret base on mars they've got a secret facility on mars yeah, yeah that's what that's what it was yeah so he knows about it. that's why they wouldn't use the channel because knowing and confirming is, are two different things so that was i thought that was also pretty important mm-hmm. and i think it was smart too i think psychor was right where he may know about it doesn't mean we're gonna let him you know know he's right does anyone want to talk about Delenn in this episode before we move on because i feel like there's a lot there that we really didn't cover uh, Emily talked a little bit about it. I mean, she's my favorite and I love her and I was glad to have her back. And um, it was interesting to see her interactions with Wando. And there's still something about her where she's keeping a lot hidden. Well, I think this this episode really shows her immense capacity for you know, positive uh, viewpoint on things. And, um, you know, she's really just you know, an, an optimist and she she believes in the best in people whenever she can. Um, that's an interesting facet of her uh, of her personality that we really get in this episode quite a bit. So, well, to Emily's point, though, something that, um, you know, if you really want to elaborate on it, I don't know if the Mimbari, are they, you know, I don't know if I say this or question, but can they see the future? Because... She's made multiple references to basically like the part Sinclair has to play or, you know, they, most of them, but mostly Delenn have made references to some future event that hasn't happened yet. As if she knows what the future, what, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen. So sounds like a question for beyond the rim. I think at that point, let's go ahead. This has been a little extra episode because we had two of them, but let's go ahead and dive into questions and predictions. So, what are our newbies' questions and predictions moving forward? And then we will jettison out the airlock and answer all those questions once they can't hear them. So I'll go to Emily first. Questions and predictions. Um, I want to know if the Earth Alliance is going to break up because they seem to be having a lot of power struggles in their structure and issues with Psychor that didn't come up in this particular episode but have been lurking in the background. And I do want to know more about the Minbari and if they have some sort of telepathic or psychic abilities, since that seemed to be hinted at in a few episodes. Cool. Let's go to Justin next. Questions, predictions? Yeah, I mean, it's the political situation is going to continue to unravel. And I really think we're going to start to see some crises pop up that I don't know what they're going to be, but I think Mars is going to be a big part of it. And that's going to be something that I think we're going to, keep encountering issues with Mars. And I think you might start to see some kind of divisions among people on the station about who's maybe more pro earth and who's maybe more pro Martian. Um, so you'll have that kind of difficulty between, between uh, characters um, is, was this ever discussed before? And maybe I was just sleeping when it happened. What exactly is earth dome? Is that like a space station that is, acts as like the Earth capital, or is it's just a, really it's, it's not a space about? station? It's on it's in Geneva. They've said it's in Geneva. Oh, okay, because they yeah. keep referencing Earth Dome. I assume it's the capital, yeah. But I never really understood kind of what exactly it was. It's the capital but, Earth um, and it has a dome. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I figured, but I thought I pictured a floaty in space thing. But and then now that draws kind of watching everything. Um, from his new role as kind of the gatekeeper of Epsilon 3. I, I, I wonder if we're going to see him use the Death Ray to protect Babylon 5 in the future. Like, because now he's kind of given over 
just you know jur- jurisdiction to Babylon Five, but will he ever act out in defense of the station if it's ever attacked or anything? So that's mainly the things I've been kind of paying attention to. Is this Chekhov's death ray above the mantle? Is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, Chekhov will be back. Ha ha ha. John. Okay. Uh, so the first question I have is um, about this planet. So aren't these other species and races explorers? You know, way before and. So I'm wondering, you know, they don't have any knowledge of this planet. No one's encountered this before. No one's run into it before. All these older races have no knowledge of it, which then leads me to, well, then how the hell did they decide to park Babylon 5 here in this orbit? I can answer that for you because it's not going to spoil anything. And this is what came out from JMS. Epsilon 3 is happens to be uh, a planet in a system that is nearly equidistant from all of the major races. So because it's so far away from all the major races, it happens to be in uh, neutral territory. So really, they just haven't gone out that far to explore this stuff. And so it's kind of like, if you think Europe, I just mentioned Geneva, Switzerland's kind of in the middle. It's in the middle of everybody. And so they haven't really dealt with it much. So none of the species had it. And the other, because they had mentioned, I think it was 500 years, which doesn't it doesn't necessarily seem that long for space. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, even even uh, I think it was Franklin said that like, you've been down there listening to this whole time. And you didn't say anything. If you didn't know it was down there, it's just a rock, and it's the third rock from the Epsilon Sun. I see yeah. his point though. Like nobody did a more extensive survey to make sure that they weren't building their giant super expensive space station over a giant time bomb <laughs> hey man budget cuts it's babylon I mean, 5 <laughs> I mean, budget one cuts. of the one of the new star trek movies basically made the exact same mistake in my opinion but like it bothered me then and it bothers me now Thank so. you. <laughs> where's the dude um okay so another i don't know if i guess this is a question so draw mentions going to the sea i assume the stars but so is that just when they get so old they just kind of hitchhike the galaxy and die kind of like when my dad said my dog went to pasture <laughs> so, they just, so they just grab a ship and just disappear like they don't die at home i because they, they made a big thing about the religious sect and then the um you know military sect like the religious they're just that's how they deal with their dead people i see it as going out for one more quest like he did he draw wasn't like i'm gonna kill over tomorrow he said he's still got more to do but he's felt he's done enough in his normal life so he's gonna go out and do one last side quest if you will and see where that takes him kind of gave me a judge judge dread vibe there deep cut there you go yeah but he said he'd never been off his planet before right that was the first time he'd even ever been anywhere else yeah yeah if you're gonna go go out of a bang or a death ray in this case. Jesse smiled intensely when you said Judge Dredd because she's absolutely watched Judge Dredd and read the comics. <laughs> I saw that in. Watch it. Watch the movie. It's no, amazing. I was laughing because you corrected him and the look of defeat on his face. I didn't correct him. Like... I, I said it was a deep cut. I was agreeing with him. No, I'm sorry. Not. Never mind. Okay, moving on. Oh. I thought you were correcting his. Never mind. Remember, no, I said it was time. a deep cut. It was. It's a pretty good prediction or viewpoint that he was correcting me, but not this particular instance. <laughs> yeah, no, I was agreeing because I I can think that. Um, okay, so another thing I noticed. I don't know if this is the first time I noticed it, but there's a on Sinclair's wall. He's got a piece of Sinclair aircraft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. Are they gonna? Is that going to come up? Is that going to be? That, is, that has been there since the gathering. Okay. It's been I there thought, and I times. thought they talked about it too. Yeah, he said, I think he said his uh, his his entire family has been pilots, going back to such and such, whatever. He comes from a long line of pilots. So Sinclair Airline or Air whatever. 
whatever it says. That's his. I think it's just like aircraft or something. Yeah, Sinclair, Sinclair aircraft or whatever. This is his grandpappy's plane. It looked pretty real. Um, okay, well, I guess that's not really a question. Uh, so I saw Garibaldi having pizza. So they have pizza, but not bacon coffee. What? I don't know what was on the pizza. <laughs> it looked like straight up Domino's. I mean, it really did. I'm sure they they were like having to drive somewhere to get that for set, and they were just like, "Hey, where's where's the nearest Domino's? Let me get." And he said he made it too. Yeah, that's what, that's funny. So, that's so bachelor life. I just made dinner. No, you didn't. You ordered out. <laughs> you didn't make shit. <laughs> Um, it's all about the presentation though yeah it's the best some of us can do i'm kind of thinking back to the future too he gets a little pizza puts it in the uh, rehydrator and it gets big and by the way if domino's wants to advertise with us i love domino's i'm just saying it (laughs) the new yeah it's good of all the cheap pizzas they are the best cheapest put respect on little caesar's name how dare you yeah, the I best, like Little Caesar's. Most pizza. cheapest pizza. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the crappiest pizza, and if they want to sponsor me, they still can. Pizza Hut. I call Pizza Hut the fast food of pizzas. They are yeah, disgusting. It's not good. There's greasy yeah. piles of bleh. Um, Okay, a couple more questions left. Was Draw really the best candidate to take over? So, of the three, right? It was essentially Sinclair, Draw, and London. The Sinclair they just kept out because you know he would have said yes. Yes, I'm still asking questions, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so the two candidates there, Draw and Lando. Draw's like 100 years old. He's basically like, again, he's about to go to the sea. So he takes over instead of like, it seems like Lando. Because again, what I took out of this was this death planet is you get one guy to run it. As soon as that guy dies, the whole thing's going to blow up. So why pick the old guy? Seemed like Lando would have been the better choice. Well, but keep in mind that Varn, I, I love the fact that we have nothing for you beyond the rim so far. Varn said he had been there for 500 years, so we don't know how long that species lives, but I'm assuming the the planet keeps you going. Said, they said that. Yeah, they okay. said it will extend his life. Yeah, yeah. extend his life. You're right, he did. He said that because Delin said, please give me good news here because I don't want to feel like he's trapped to this thing. And he says it's going to extend your life. It's going to let him reach his mind out to the far ends of the universe so he's in you know a pretty cool place for being locked up in a machine i suppose and also so, yeah, go ahead mike i was just say so it's they got they've got like a dispensary <laughs> <laughs> so it's not worth pausing for sorry god we were waiting for a good joke and we got that womp womp that's got hollywood it. baby <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, second to last question here. So draw mentions like basically leave us alone until the time is right. How the hell are they going to know when the time is right? Good. Now I can do that. We'll tell you beyond the rim. <laughs> Excellent. You actually gave me a beyond the, beyond the rim question. Cause I mean, it's not a spoiler much like Justin said, this is Chekhov's death ray. You don't put Chekhov's death ray on the top of mantle in act one and not use it in act three. So I don't know what that means. Chekhov's gun. It's a literature term. If you put a gun over the mantle in Act 1, you're going to have the main character use the gun in Act 3. Check off gun. Well, okay. Called it a MacGuffin, but... Okay, and then my last question was, uh, was Earth Alliance always meant to be the bad guy? Was it always a commentary on humanity and or politics? Imperialism, I mean, whatever you want to put in there, but as JMS said as much. I will say, and I'm not going to get into what JMS has said on that one because that's a good point, but I will say... the f- the people who have been listening to our podcast, we've got a lot of folks who lo- watched this back in the '90s who are commenting that they are see- you guys are seeing stuff that they did not see, and I'm not saying it's correct or not in the show, but we've got a lot of comments that people are saying that you guys see things differently than they saw in the '90s. And I think part of that is 
the past couple decades that we have lived in. And so we are looking at this show from a very different perspective than the viewers and I think the showrunners uh, when they were making the show, you know, 30 years ago. So it's interesting to watch that. Well, my prediction is that uh, Earth Alliance is bad and they will come back up uh, and they will try to get at that planet. And I guess we'll see it in the third act, which I'm guessing, Scott, you're saying about season four, about season five, when we come back? <laughs> Talk about Beyond the Rim. Okay, Nicole. Uh, for me, my only question is the alliance that Draw was talking about um, that Sinclair was going to head up. Um, just who's going to be on that alliance? Are we going to hear anything from them? Is that going to be an ongoing thing, or was it just mentioned and we'll never hear about it again? Um, that was that's, that's already there. That's the, the the league. That's what he was referring to. Oh, okay. You've got the okay. council. You've got okay. the, the four main races or five. So main that's races. who he was talking yeah. about. Okay, yeah. I thought it was making a new one. Okay. Nope. Nope, he was okay. referring to the, 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 the council we've seen several times. Gotcha. Okay, uh, uh, that was really my only question that I could think of now. Um, and then my only prediction would be is I think that the Mars thing is going to escalate and possibly spill over into Babylon 5. Cool. Andrew, questions, predictions? So uh, I only have really I only have one question coming away from this. As I said earlier, the uh, Garibaldi and Talia, Garibaldi insinuating that he knows about a secret base that uh, Psychor has on Mars and Psychor telling Talia that, like, well, it doesn't matter if he actually knows whether or not it, it for sure exists or not. Uh, like, it, it's still a problem. So uh, my question is, is uh, Psychor now going to have it out for uh, Garibaldi? Well, I mean, he didn't go through Psychor. Sinclair used his own contacts. He bypassed Psychor. Psychor was not involved. No, he asked Talia to reach out to... Oh, so originally in episode yes. one. Yeah, and he. And he yeah. Uh, I uh, thought you meant like because it, I thought you meant because Garibaldi got in touch with Liz. I get, I get what you're saying. Okay. Uh, like, it kind of seemed like Garibaldi was kind of using that as leverage. Mm, okay, I see. Jesse. I have none. John asked like eight hundred questions. John did have the long list of questions. He did. <laughs> it's like fifteen minutes of John asking questions. Um, okay. I have none. We'll go ahead and end it there for our newbies. And for those who have just watched up until this point, this is where you should also leave two after our credits. But then if you either have already watched the show or don't care about spoilers, you can continue on with Kevin, Blake, Mike, and I as we answer these questions, predictions that John gave us. Because I think John was the only one who gave us questions, predictions. That's not true. But he gave us most of them. Okay. So until next week, when we talk about Babylon Squared, I am Scott, and with me has been... Kevin. Emily. Blake. Andrew. Justin. Mike. Yep, Chuckle Nugget, John. Jesse. And Nicole. While you're preparing to watch Babylon Squared with us, please be sure to make sure you like, subscribe, follow, go over to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and check us out there. As well as if you're listening to the audio podcast, we do have a YouTube account and vice versa. If you're on YouTube, we do have a podcast account. So check all those out in the show notes below. And we will talk to you next week with Babylon Squared. I have one more thing to say. Yes, ma'am. I'd like you to all take time to learn the Babylon 5 mantra. Ivanova is always right. I will listen to Ivanova. I will not ignore Ivanova's recommendations. Ivanova is God. And if this ever happens again, Ivanova will personally rip out your mouth. 
Thank you for listening to Gray 17, a Babylon 5 podcast. You can find all the places to listen to this podcast and links to our social media accounts at anchor.fm slash gray17podcast. We want to hear from you, so please join the discussion on Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Gray 17 is a part of the Front Row Network and NPR Illinois Community Voices. You can find all the Front Row shows at thefrontrownetwork.com. Gray 17 is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by Warner Brothers or any other owners of the Babylon 5 copyright. All audio clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. The opening and closing Babylon 5 themes are available from Falling Matter on YouTube. And what's out there? The rim. And beyond that? The truth. Welcome back to Beyond the Rim. Again, final warning. If you have not watched past A Voice in the Wilderness Parts 1 and 2, you probably should leave now because we're going to be talking spoilers. And with this one, there's a lot of lore involved, so we will be spoiling a lot. So that being said, guys, let's go ahead and dive into the questions. And we'll look at Emily's questions first. And that is, does President Santiago even exist? And will the Earth Alliance break up? And uh, I'll ask some more after that. But those two kind of run together. I mean, Santiago does exist. We, we've talked about this before and beyond the rim in some of JMS's comments that, you know, it was an intentional choice not to have the president as a present character um, on B5. And, you know, the few times we have seen the president, it's either through VidLink or, you know, in season four when he offs himself. Mm-hmm. We'll actually see President Clark in episode one. No, actually, no, we'll see him in Chrysalis. He'll be Vice President Clark in Chrysalis. Right? But again, it's vid-like. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like the president steps foot on the station and shakes, you know, mm-hmm. Sinclair's hand or anybody. That just doesn't happen. Yep, you're right. And will Earth Alliance break up? Hell yeah. Uh, she wants to know more about the Minbari. Okay, well, wait for legacies. You'll get some. <laughs> and do they have psychic capabilities? This was actually something that John asked, too. How does Delin know the future? Well, Delin knows the future because she has been told by uh, Kosh and others that this is all part of a master plan. She doesn't know the whole plan yet, but she knows there is a plan, and she knows Sinclair is a part of the plan. And we know, obviously, uh, that that plan will entail Sinclair becoming Valen. This is production order 20 and 21, so we do know at this point that uh, chances of Michael O'Hare staying on are not good, so we are moving towards the Valen storytelling here as opposed to the original idea. So it's not that they have the ability to see the future, it's that Sinclair has gone back in the past and told them the future. Timey and, wimey. Now to add there, the Mimbari do have telepaths. We just haven't seen them yet. Yeah, yeah, but they're but not. There is that, which is they're not clairvoyant. I think the only clairvoyance we ever see. They do have telepaths. The only ever, the only people we have seen that can potentially tell the future are the Centauri. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, uh, I love the fact that Londo mentioned again that he dreamt because we've been told the Centauri dream their their deaths. He dreamt that he would be on his feet making one last brave stand. And when he lets Jakar kill him, it is out of bravery to sacrifice himself to save others. So he dreamt it again, just in not the way he thought. But just a bit more on the Mavari. I mean, as we're going to figure out, we've alluded to, the, 
they have framed within prophecies, as you mentioned, that Valen gives them and hands down. They also have archival records that we will see eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, we're heading into Babylon Squared, and then uh, beyond that, you know, we're going to learn a lot more about Membari prophecy and what they have and how they got it. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, we won't know the full extent until we even get to In the Beginning, the yeah. movie, because that's when we learn that the Vorlons are actually like, hanging out with the Membari on their main ship saying this is happening and you need to be prepared and so forth and so on. So the Vorlons are very much basically the eyes and ears of Valen a thousand years later. And we also know through side commentary, uh, it never is really mentioned on the show. There was actually intent to talk more about the creation of the great machine in one of the TV movies and it didn't happen. It was cut, but we know that JMS has said that the great machine was created in response by Valen saying, we're going to need something to fight the shadows with. So that's why it's created. It's all part of the plan moving forward as well, too. Uh, we got John's questions next. Will Mars be a significant plot point in season two? Nope, not at all. Mars never comes up again. Uh, I think it does in season two. It does. I'm being sarcastic. Absolutely. Oh, oh, oh. Mars comes up. <laughs> two and three, big time. Well, in five. Yeah. In four. <laughs> all of them. Yeah. Because, you mean, you've True. got the, I mean, I think, I think Mars takes the biggest piece in four and five. I mean, mm-hmm. in four, you've got racing Mars and all of that. We've got Franklin and Marcus going to the resistance and working with the resistance. And then you've got the all, the part of season five that I actually kind of enjoy and Garibaldi's like inner workings with the, uh, the business and taking over that business on Mars too is always kind of fun to watch Garibaldi finally get what he wants. Well, in season two, it is a little quiet, but uh, Spider in the Web, which is a great episode, yes. by the way, mm-hmm. um, will be kind of a pivotal one with Mars and the behind-the-scenes pieces there. Speaking of Garibaldi getting what he wants, I love that this is one of the times where we actually get an actress or act, an actor who actually stays, and that storyline ends a little better for Garibaldi than what we think it's going to end at this point. Yeah, because to your point, I mean, they, they replaced the drawl actor uh, when we see yep. him next. So. And then they make the excuse that it's because the machine has rejuvenated him to a younger appearance. Yeah. Sinclair aircraft on the wall, that actually, the logo is from Sinclair Oil from about the 40s with their aircraft uh, division. Nice. But it later became, and the same logo was used, it's a company that restores historic aircraft. Nice. So it is a legit logo. It's not made for the show. I love that that's just a little um, universe building that's been there from the beginning. Mike, go ahead. Do you know, uh, is there a reason why they recast Drawl? Because that same actor comes back in a different role later, doesn't he? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he just wasn't available for me. You know what? Hold on. When does Drawl pop up next? It's not World Without End. He pops up. It's when he gives them access yeah, because he came back as Brother Theo. Yeah, and he's in three or four episodes as Brother Theo. Uh, the actor probably wasn't available for something. I have a I have a question. Why? Where is Zathras in this episode? I mean, they say that that uh, there's no one on the planet but uh, uh, Varn. I'm just wondering where Zathras was at this point. And where's Zathras? And where is Zathras? And then also where is Zathras? And you can't forget Zathras as well. I'm almost wondering, and I don't know this, but I'm almost wondering if Zathras's connection to the Great Machine wasn't really connected at this point. 
Yeah. And I, I wonder if, because what, what we know now, and there's Epsilon 3 is basically the MacGuffin for everything. So we know through extended media and through the show that the, the Triluminary was created on Epsilon 3. Um, the, um, the, the time devices were created that, uh, Zathras gave them was created on Epsilon 3. We know that Epsilon 3 created the rift that helped to move before, uh, obviously is going to help with the finding of first ones. It's going to help Ivanova hack into communications to find out the connection between the shadows and, president clark and so forth and so on so they basically have done everything but i'm wondering if at this point in the show if it those connections haven't been made yet so zathras obviously is another part of this but i don't know if because we don't actually see zathras's connection with epsilon 3 i believe i may be wrong but i don't think we see his connection until world without end yeah because he was just on babylon 4 and he didn't really know where he came from no he's just there yeah. Right. He's in there's no connection You get all that later. Yeah, there's no connection right now with Epsilon three and Zathras. He shows up in Babylon Squared and in War Without End Part Two. And that's when we know that and he also shows up in conflicts of of interest, but that's season four. So mm-hmm. I just don't think the connection was made yet. Yeah. That's my assumption. Was Draw really the best candidate to take over the machine? Uh, I think Dylan insinuated that Sinclair was the best candidate to take over the machine. How will they know when the time is right to use the machine? Uh, Draw's going to say, hi, I'm back. <laughs> That's how they're going to know. I mean, yeah. I mean, that implies that Varn or the machine are somehow going to impart knowledge on Drawl, I would think. I guess I guess it's possible Drawl already knew more about the prophecies going into it but i i think it's a, probably a little bit of both draw is a higher l- level religious cast member so he probably knows more than delenn does on some of the stuff even though Glenn's great counsel i don't know about now i'm questioning myself but i think also too it's insinuated that draw has now that he's tied into this thing has connections to everything and can basically see all and be all so i think he's just kind of downloading this stuff and figuring out what's what so yeah there was something else i wanted to bring up about the uh the narn and the centauri um i you know they they really you know have brought it up a couple of times uh in the series uh thus far but this is the first time when you really get it widescreen dolby stereo how uh those two races are just destined throughout the series to be uh, at odds, uh, and that's saying it mildly. Um, and it's it's sad because you know Delenn, you know, had some hope there, and that hope just completely is obliterated by the the third season. We already talked about the human race always being the bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I said, yeah. I, th- I think I don't think I think they're reading. I, yes, we all know that the Earth Alliance is going to be the bad guys for a bit, but I think they're reading into it too much still. I honestly, I honestly think that they're just assuming that everyone in Earth Alliance is bad. I mean, Captain Pierce is a dick, but he wasn't overly wrong. He had orders. He went in and he yeah. did his orders. Yeah. He was given an order to do a job and that's exactly what he wanted to do. Well, you know, I should have pointed out during the other section, but I actually thought as far as, quote-unquote villains go uh pierce was probably one of the better acted ones besides uh, bester so far i felt like he was one of the first performances that was 
I mean, he was a dickhead, obviously, but he wasn't giving that super over the top Bond yeah. villainy performance. He was, yeah, he Ron, was Ron Canada, you know, he was on West Wing, he's been on, uh, you know, Star Trek, he's been all over the place, and he always seems to have a very uh, very good performance whenever he does a role i've never seen him seriously choose some scenery like yeah uh, some of the other guest stars they've had yeah and uh, i do love the uh the last interaction between sinclair and pierce when pierce is you know trying to be magnanimous and trying to apologize and sinclair's like yeah, accepted and just uh, <laughs> i want you to get the frick away from me go as far away as possible i don't need you here he was yeah, quite and- nice and another another note about everybody kind of homing in on Earth Alliance as being the bad guy. I'm I'm actually I agree with what you said. I think they're a little too into it at this point in time. They're they're projecting <laughs> maybe, but but they also completely like nobody mentioned the line, and I forgot who said it in this episode. Somebody points out that ever since the Mimbari Earth Mimbari War, that Earth Alliance has been desperate to get their hands on the latest mm-hmm. greatest new technology and well, that you, played right into their arguments about how oh earth will be back to take on epsilon three like they're not going to let that go but <laughs> nobody nobody let that they, they let that line slide by yeah i think it's part of it is they're i i, I they're looking at this from a different lens than what was really what was there but also i think they have a little echo chamber going one person says, hey, these guys are quote-unquote shady, and then the other person agrees on it, and then another person agrees on it, and they've been kind of echoing each other on this thing. And so every time it comes up in the show, and it's valid that the Earth Alliance sometimes is not the protagonist, it's the antagonist, whether it's a villain or not is up to for debate, but it just keeps that echo chamber going. And they're going to be right at the end. They're, but I think Lockley says it best in Season 5 when she was asked what side you were on, I was on the side of Earth, and that's all you need to know, because <laughs> everyone's on the side of Earth, whether it's in the Army of Light or whether it's Earth Alliance. You're f- following orders or doing what you need to do. I, I think you're right there about the lens that they're looking at this through also, uh, especially given the current context of the last several years that we've seen in this country, that we've seen even worldwide with various movements um, taking place, that you know, it's a very different lens now than what this was when they would have been watching if someone was watching this 30 years ago. Um, I think the pieces are more salient now, given everything that we've seen um, in witnessed um and even you watch uh not to bring up star trek references but you watch the episode of strange new worlds when pike gives the alien species the you know earth history it's like this was our darkest days mm-hmm. you know and and we're showing contemporary stuff from the january 6th riots and mm-hmm. uh, other protests from around the world at this point so i think the lens they're seeing this through is really tainting their vision because um, sci-fi has always been an allegory to current events and i think they're projecting not looking at it in the context of what was the world in 1994-95 but looking at it now within the allegory of what this show is saying well, I think that makes it a timeless show, too, because it can yeah. still fit. Whether it's what the intention of the showrunner was or not, it still fits. And, you know, we get in trouble <clears throat> by some folks on the Internet about how we, we shouldn't politicize stuff. But I'm sorry. Um, we are at a place right now, and I mentioned it earlier, where you have armed gunmen trying to scare people from voting. And I don't care what party you're in. That's a freaking problem. And well, the fact that we're in that place is kind of scary. And that's and that's kind of why I kind of jumped on Andrew's remark too, because I had that exact same thought. And I think you know more and more these days, 
I hear people at least boast that they're more and more willing to go take violence against people who don't share their beliefs. You know, that, that for the first time, there are people who I formerly liked and respected who have come right out and said that they think civil war is the solution to the problem. Uh, yeah versus civil discourse and uh, it just it disgusts me and i hate to see that that's exactly how you know people talk and then there's this guy at the bar in babylon 5 basically saying the same thing he's like these aren't my fellow people they're they're nobodies they're they're not me you know mm-hmm. and that's it's it's tough yeah can, we all we all know people like yeah. that guy at the bar and we all are yeah. horrified by what they say and yet it seems like every every passing election cycle that their numbers grow it's and I don't getting know uglier and uglier yeah yeah and, and even the comment the guy at the bar was making about the resentment towards mars about how you know they get all the best of this they get all that they get all the resources and the mm-hmm. money i mean take mars and earth out of that and make it urban rule i mean you get that oh, same yeah. argument from rural communities that oh they pay taxes that just go into these cities and pay for all this stuff in big cities and they don't get anything out of it. You know, the reality of the situation is per capita rural communities spend more tax dollars than cities do. Yeah, I mean, the breakdown, but they don't see it. You know, we recorded this. We're recording this episode a few weeks before it drops. So this is older news at this point. But I mean, we literally a few days ago had an assassination attempt on the person who's third in line for the presidency. She wasn't in the house, but her unfortunate husband was. And he is still in very um, uh, traumatic condition. So. And we're not even talking about it. I don't see it being talked about because it's just become freaking normal. And we get we get told that we're leftists and all that. But I will point to a person who I agree with about none of the time. But he's uh, one of the representatives who's making sense. And he happens to be from Illinois. Adam Kinzinger, who is out of a job come January, he said to the violence, this is he said this yesterday, this is what happens when you convince a third of the country that election was stolen and the other side is an enemy. This is the kind of stuff that every person needs to speak out against. This is what happens when you start this little spiral of violence that, Mike, you're talking about. It's scary. And it doesn't end up well for Babylon 5 for a while. Which of Londo's wives was he talking about? Because I, I did not, like John yeah. did, assume that uh, he had divorced that wife uh, mm-hmm. at, at this point. And uh, I'm guessing it's probably Timov because she's got the voice for it. <laughs> yeah. Londo? <laughs> Curdle fresh milk. I remind, just love that it's Remind me. Food. Was Timoff's pestilence, famine, or death? I can't remember. <laughs> Andrew, is Garibaldi going to be in trouble with Psychor over this thing on Mars? Not for this reason, but Psychor and Garibaldi are going to have a rumble. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I continue to harp on the whole Garibaldi must suffer, but there is no greater suffering than when he has to deal with his mind being taken over by the Psychor, and that is a rough patch of episodes to watch. Yeah. So, but that has nothing to do with this. It's just going to happen because Bester's a prick. So Justin's predictions, predicting more problems on the station between Mars and supporters and Earth Alliance supporters. Uh, yes. Wait until you see the black uh, armbands come out, Justin. You're going to have a field day. Yeah. Home Guard's going to be, you're going to be like, I told you so. Mars will have a plot line that continues. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and will the draw death ray come back? No, actually, the death ray does not come back. And I was kind of a red herring. I kept talking yeah. about like the death ray, the the Chekhov's death ray. 
it got put on the mantle in Act 1, but it does not come off the mantle in Act 3. Other pro- stuff from that planet comes up, as we have already talked about here, but the Death Ray does not return. It, I, I think the effect of it does, if I'm not mistaken, because when they send the tachyon pulses to... And yeah. They'll reuse the shot, but it's not the Death Ray. Yeah, it's not the Death Ray, it's Communication Ray. But yeah, no, I, I was literally making that a red herring because these guys are so into their knowing what's going on and questioning spoilers and everything else uh, that I, I, I wanted to throw something out there that I know is actually not true. So those who are like, actually, the death rate has not come back. I know. I know it doesn't. I know. <laughs> oh, and then Nicole says the Mars conflict will spill over to B5. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I don't, the Mars conflict, yes, it will, it, there will be some spillover, but I think it's just going to be the conflict in general is going to spill over to B5. Because there's people at B5, much like the jerk-off in the bar, who think we should nuke them all and then shoot them when they glow in the dark. And then there's other people who don't agree with that. So, And that's the one I think is one of the things I liked about this show the most, is you're putting a lot of different types of people, not only different species, but different humans together and ha- watching them bounce off each other. I think the biggest where it spills onto the station is Spider in the Web, because that's when we actually have like the assassination attempt with uh, Khashoggi and yes. all that. I think that's going to be the biggest one where it spills onto the station, or at least the first one where it really spills on after this. Mm-hmm. Anything else for this episode? I think we're going to talk more about Epsilon 3 when we get into B4, so next week, because Babylon Square just happens to be in the HBO Max order, the next episode. And we'll obviously talk about Epsilon 3 more when we get to the episodes where Drawl and Epsilon 3 gets mentioned and comes back. The other one I didn't mention, Epsilon 3 is also used in uh, later seasons to house um, medical refugees who can't be housed on B5. So Epsilon 3 gets used a lot. So I'm looking forward to talking to you all about Babylon Squared next week. I'm also looking forward to seeing what the newbies have to say about that episode because especially for our Nicole and Jesse who aren't the biggest sci-fi fans, I think a lot of the timey stuff may either interest them or may just go completely over their head, and I'm interested to see which way it's going to go. We put a lot of emphasis on Babylon Square because we know the importance of it, but I don't think you get the full importance of how big that episode is until you get to War Without End, so I'm interested to see how much the newbies even care about this episode, uh, aside from the fact that they get to see B4 finally, but we'll see. Until next week, when we talk about Babylon Squared, I've been Scott, and with me has been... Kevin, Blake, and Mike. See ya. Magic? Want to see magic? I got a little magic trick for you. Hey, that magic could pass through the top of the bar. Hey, let go! I'll need complete silence. I'll have to ask for another volunteer from the audience. Let's see, what was that magic word again? Shazam? Oh, that's not it. I'll tell you what, I'll go home and look at my books, then I'll come back. If we're still talking trash about killing Marzies, we'll try it again and again until we get it right. Huh? Worst case of testosterone poisoning I've ever seen.